politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles. We're heard from Santa Barbara to San Diego at 90.7 FM, live streaming on the Internet at kpfk.org. And, of course, we're podcast forevermore on all platforms. Thanks for joining us and uh, making it a habit, hopefully, to be with us every Tuesday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon on KPFK. This is a program about consciousness. It's about self-awareness. It's about uh, ethics and morality. It's a show about reality. And we're going to jump right into it today. This is an exciting show for me to do. We have a guest who is a businessman. He is an author of a couple of books we're going to talk about. He's a podcaster himself, and he's a student of consciousness. In fact, uh, he's going to tell us about his own journey down the rabbit hole, so to speak, into an explosion of awareness about awareness itself. That's what consciousness is. And we call it the mystery school here because the greatest mysteries in the universe are about awareness itself. Nothing is more fundamental than noticing what you notice or being aware of awareness itself. And to explore that, well, that's something that uh, keeps uh, my engines fueled and I think my guests as well. Let me bring it on board here. I was going to say from uh, everywhere, because you move around a lot, Mark, but his name is Mark Gober, G-O-B-E-R. Mark Gober is the author of a couple of books, most recently, An End to Upside Down Living, and a couple of years before that, a book called An End to Upside Down Thinking. So here's the right side up, Mark Gober. Hello, Mark. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I uh, was mentioning to you briefly before we went on the air that a friend introduced your work to me. Uh, You're creating a buzz with these books, and uh, it's exciting to see a younger generation pick up the theme that we've been uh, hammering on for quite a while. I think quantum physics helps a lot, but whether it is modern science or ancient philosophy, we're arriving at some wonderful new insights about the nature of reality that carry a potential to change the world in a remarkably wonderful way. And uh, it's a pleasure to have this chance to talk to you about it. What's your backstory? I know you're sort of a Silicon Valley business guy, and then something happened that you became interested in the nature of consciousness. Well, I never expected to be looking at these topics, writing books, doing podcasts. That was not, it wasn't like I had a long-term plan to do this. 
Um, I went to Princeton undergrad, very traditional educational upbringing, wasn't thinking about consciousness there, went into investment banking, which was in 2008 during the crisis in New York. So I was working nonstop. Uh, but in the back of my mind throughout all of this, I would say that I, I was pretty nihilistic. I thought that science told us life is ultimately meaningless, that we're just a random uh, accumulation of matter that has been it's, it's, we turned into conscious beings by virtue of random reactions in the universe, ultimately, and that when we die, that's the end. That was my overall worldview at the time, even though I didn't think about it so much. I was just focused on what my next achievement was going to be. I always had goals. So it was grades. I was also the captain, one of the captains of the tennis team at Princeton, went into investment banking, working all the time, uh, then joined a firm, eventually moving to Silicon Valley, first in Boston, before that, advising tech companies on intellectual property, business strategy. So none of this had to do with consciousness. But in 2016, I was listening to podcasts myself, mostly on health and business, not looking for anything new in terms of existential thinking. But I heard one episode of a woman on a health show talking about psychic abilities and working with energy. Her name's Laura Powers. And at the end of that interview, she said she had her own podcast called Healing Powers. So I ended up listening to that show and heard a lot of people talk about those similar ideas. And it got to a point where I said, wait, these people are independently describing a view of reality that I've never heard of before. And if there's any truth to what they're saying, then I have to rethink everything. <laughs> so within the matter of a, a few weeks and months, I realized that my prior worldview was wrong, that I had to rethink everything. And that, as you said, led me down a rabbit hole where I ended up writing these two books and it continues today. Well, let me go, let me lean into you a little bit about that because I'm sure there are many other people who stumble upon this information and they just ponder it for a few minutes or a few days and then go back to their reality, their sense of normalcy. Why do you think or why do you feel, why do you believe that for you there was some motivation that prevented you from just dismissing it and going back to work? Hmm. Well, I opened my second book, An End to Upside Down Living, with a question, which is, what is the overall intention of your life? And the book examines the answer to that question based on look, you know, the, the nature of reality. But I didn't, I didn't have an overall intention for my life at the time because I thought life was meaningless. So I was just going from one thing to the next and not knowing why I cared so much one way or the other, whether I succeeded or failed in something, and yet I would be so emotionally involved in either direction. But there was nothing behind any of that because I thought everything was meaningless and so my fundamental worldview was being challenged. Maybe there is meaning. Maybe there is something beyond this life and what we can see. So that made it forced me to reconsider all of my assumptions. So it's sort of like it was the first domino. And that spiraled into new ways of looking at life and new ways of prioritizing what I did and cared about. Did it ever feel like an awakening to you? Yes, and I would say that it is not past tense. It is an ongoing <laughs> sense where it constantly feels like there's an awakening. But I, I will say at the beginning of the process, it was incredibly disorienting. It was in many ways unpleasant because I didn't, first of all, in my business community and social circles, these were not ideas that people talk about. So I didn't have many people to speak to about it, although eventually I did once I understood the science more and could communicate it. But at first it was very isolating and I had to try to reconcile the fact that I, I thought I was well-educated. I thought I had a decent sense of how the world worked. 
And I was learning I had no clue, actually. So that was, I didn't know, I didn't even know where to begin with it. And I, I had to think to myself, wait, if I have this different worldview, then how am I going to relate to other people around me who are looking at things in a totally different way? So those are the kinds of thoughts going through my head. And it was, it was not pleasant at first. And it, it just, it's been an ongoing adjustment period. As I learn more and more, um, I continue to look at life differently and it becomes more comfortable. And we should be clear, the basic worldview shift that we're talking about here is a kind of a 180 that instead of consciousness or awareness, sentience being the byproduct of brain chemistry, it uh, appears as a result of a lot of research that it's the other way around, that consciousness is fundamental and the appearance of a physical dense universe is a matter of perception pretty much. And um, what were, well, first of all, tell me the subtitle of your first book, because I think you say it very well. An end to upside down thinking, your subtitle is? Dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications for everyday life. There you go. See, so dispelling that myth. So what does that leave us with? If the brain does not produce consciousness, what does and what is consciousness? Is, and, and by the way, I might as well throw into the mix. As far as you're concerned, is consciousness a synonym for awareness? Or are those terms synonymous in, in your way of thinking? Well, I think consciousness is something that's difficult to put into words because it's inherently abstract and subjective. Like I can touch my chair, but I can't touch my consciousness. Any description we use is inherently a limitation on something that is probably undefinable and unlimited. All that said, I think awareness is an approximation. I like to say it's it's that which experiences. Dr. Bernardo Castro uses that uh, phrase, that which experiences. The sense of experiencing is consciousness, and awareness is embedded within that. There's a riddle I read or read about in the Upanishads, ancient Eastern philosophy, spiritual documents, holy books. And it goes something like, uh, I can only paraphrase it, but it's something like, uh, what cannot be seen, heard, or felt, but without which nothing can be seen, heard, or felt. <laughs> exactly. And that pretty much sums it up. Without awareness, nothing exists. If we were completely unaware, so... That means we have to look at our sense of reality being a function of only that which we're aware of. And if we're wise at all, homo sapien, that means a wise person, we have to realize there's much outside our conscious awareness that effectively does not exist for us. Well, I love the analogy used by Dr. Kastrup. He says it's as if we are whirlpools within a stream of consciousness. So we have the sense of being individuals, but we're fundamentally interconnected as part of something much bigger. And as an individual whirlpool, we have a limited sense of perception of what we actually experience within that whirlpool's percept perceptual abilities. But there's much more beyond that. And the way I look at the brain, actually, in that context is the brain is essentially blocking out the broader stream. It's almost like a blindfold or a filtering mechanism. There's a much broader reality. And when the brain is knocked out of the way, like in a near-death experience, some emerging psychedelics research suggests this happens when the brain has reductions in functioning. 
with associated with the psychedelic trip and many other examples, our brain is like a processor. Another way I think about it is like a Play-Doh machine. If you're, if you're sticking Play-Doh in and squeeze it through like a, a spaghetti maker, the Play-Doh is like consciousness and our brain and body system is like the contraption that molds the consciousness into a specific type. Which is the way we identify ourselves in the world around us, right? Yes. Our priorities, our values, what we think. That's why there's so much disagreement in the world. It's not that our brains are so different, but we're just looking at different movies, I think. I agree. You know, even my wife and I, we've been together for 30-some years, and, uh, you know, we can finish watching a movie, for example, and uh, as similar as we are in so many ways, end up with completely different opinions about what that movie was really about. And that can be, you know, that can lead to friction, but uh, (laughs) it doesn't have to be hostility, and yet increasingly in the world, that's what we're seeing, this divisiveness. I'm, I'm wondering what you think, Mark, about binary thinking and the tendency of people to see life as true or false and all this or all that, either or, you know, uh, it's it's so frustrating for me to deal with that. And I wonder if you see that and if it concerns you. Well, I do see it. And I think that line of thinking, that kind of binary thinking, leaves out the possibility of paradox where two things that seem to be contradictory can simultaneously be true because reality is way more complex than just something binary, yes, no. It's, it's much more abstract. So at the highest level, to me, the ultimate paradox is the idea that we are individuals and yet we are interconnected as something bigger, that our identity is two things simultaneously. So if we just accept that paradox as true, that we could be both an individual and not an individual simultaneously, it implies that there's so much nuance to everything in the world yeah, the ancient mystics often called that the one and the many. Yes. How can we be both a unified field of consciousness, the absolute, so to speak, and this multiplicity of form at the same time? I think it was Confucius that said all truth is found in paradox. <laughs> so it's a good exercise to ponder those contradictions. And as a journalist, I see it in news all the time. Maybe that's why... I'm so often frustrated by it. People will say, well, what are we going to do about this or that? And they give you two choices. And often the answer is, well, a little of both. (laughs) Yeah. And yet they continue to ask the question as if, uh, yeah, like let's say an energy issue. What are we going to do, fossil fuels or nuclear? Well, wait a minute. (laughs) Maybe there's solar. Maybe there's a third option or a fourth possibility. And I think it's born of the fight or flight thing going on with the amygdala in the brain that the ultimate binaryism or bifurcation of reality is, are you a good guy or a bad guy? Are you in my tribe or are you a threat? And that either or gets projected out into the world so that Everything is all or nothing. Yeah. Well, it reinforces the idea we spoke about with regard to the brain and consciousness and the body being a filtering mechanism and a processor of something that's much broader, much more intelligent 
we have inherent limitations being in a body. And I think it's expressed exactly in the way that you said it. As you reflect back on your awakening, your awareness of awareness itself, what were a couple of key revelations, I'll say, big epiphanies for you? And maybe you could even give attribution to the individual, the book, the phrase, this field of study that uh, was a big lid lifter in your life. Well, I would say fundamentally the biggest epiphany I had was realizing that these various phenomena that we talk about, like psychic abilities or near-death experiences or children who have past life memories, these various phenomena that seem paranormal, they're called anomalies, they all relate to this connection between the brain and consciousness. And at one point early in my research, I learned that Science Magazine, a mainstream outlet, had said that the number two question remaining in all of science is, to paraphrase, how does the brain create consciousness? The way they say it is, what is the biological basis of consciousness? That question itself is significant because it, number one, acknowledges that science doesn't understand how a brain could create consciousness. And number two, it shows that implied in the question is the idea that the brain does create consciousness. So to me, that showed, number one, it's a big question. And number two, they're making an assumption within the question. And maybe that's why they haven't answered it, because they're asking the wrong question. Yeah, the fundamental premise is an error. Is an error. So of course you can't answer that question. So I start from that. I like to start there because even someone in the mainstream would say, okay, well, we don't fully understand consciousness. And then to get to your question about some of the epiphanies beyond that, a lot of scientists in this realm of the paranormal, I think, who are incredibly brave, had a big influence on me. So Dr. Dean Radin from the Institute of Noetic Sciences, where I joined the board, where they do lots of research on telepathic studies, showing the statistical evidence for things of that nature. Uh, but Dean Radin's book, Entangled Minds, Larry Dossi's book, One Mind, and many others in that general vein of putting these anomalies together and tying it also with quantum physics and consciousness. And it started to congeal in my mind that there was something that could unify these seemingly disparate ideas. They're all related to consciousness. They're all related to the idea that our brain is a processor, a filter, a blindfold, and our identity is well beyond our body. We're all made of the same clay, star stuff, right? We live on this uh, rocky planet. All the soil on top of the rocks comes from past life, plants, and animals. And uh, some of this material is animated by life. You and me, the animals and the plants. But there's a great deal of physical material that is not animated by life. And I don't ever hear people discussing this as if, why is my body, which is made out of the clay of the earth, animated and aware of itself, and these rocks and soil and rivers and mountains and sky and gases are not sentient, not animated, not, you know, the difference between so-called organic and inorganic life. That's another way of looking at that conundrum, I think. It is. And the way that I, I think about that conundrum, because I've asked myself that question a lot, is that if consciousness is truly fundamental, more fundamental than matter, then consciousness is experiencing itself through the physical world and through various types of vessels. So arguably everything in the universe is infused with consciousness because consciousness is its 
basic composition, but the way in which that consciousness is expressed is very different in a human being versus a cat, for example, where different vessels of expression for that consciousness. Well, that's very important. So you're saying even that physical dense material, the periodic table, the minerals, the, the rocks, is or are conscious, but in a different way, just like plants are obviously conscious, they respond to their environment, but they don't have the awareness that animals have. Exactly. And it's, it's impossible for us to even conceive. I'm, I'm giving a conceptual framework because we don't know what it means for consciousness to be expressed in matter. Conceptually, that's it makes sense. Uh, but theoretically, everything in the universe is infused with consciousness because that's its basic composition. Yeah, I, uh, I've read that even microbes, single-celled animals like slime mold, was a famous experiment where this microscopic single-celled creature can solve the shortest path to food problem in a microscopic maze. <laughs> a single cell, aware of itself, and able to solve a problem to learn and understand. Well, then I start looking at my body, which is made up of billions and maybe trillions of Cells, skin cells, muscle cells, bone cells, blood cells. If each of those are conscious and immersed in the ocean of consciousness, then to be aware of that is to have some responsibility for <laughs> not just the way we think and feel, but the way we address our body in physical health, in performance, in longevity, this is a remarkable breakthrough in evolution that human beings are becoming aware of themselves as more conscious than we ever thought. I completely agree with you. And the term that I use in my second book, An End to Upside Down Living, is stewardship, that we are, are stewards of, of our skills, of our bodies, of our resources. And it is up to us to optimize and take care of anything that is within our purview because it's, it's our responsibility as vessels of consciousness. I had a teacher years ago that used to say, whenever you discover a problem, make it yours. And boy, was, <laughs> was I resistant to that concept initially. I thought, my God, I've already got enough problems. Now every world problem is mine. But he wasn't talking about responsibility as a burden. He was talking about it as a freedom, yeah. as an opportunity to make some choices about how I live, move, and have my being within that world of perception. You're reminding me of one of my favorite quotes from Dr. David Hawkins, a spiritual teacher. He said, our, contribu our, our contribution to the world is the perfection of our own self that when we elevate ourselves individually, we then become more capable of contributing in whatever way to the world. So, But it starts with the individual evolution, and then it progresses outward. Yeah, there's a paradox. Because selfish people put themselves first, but you're saying the most charitable and philanthropic people also must put themselves first. Yeah, it's a balance. It's a, another paradox, not either or. Yeah. Mark Gober is our guest today. He's the author of An End to Upside-Down Thinking and also the follow-up book, an end to upside-down living. And we'll have more in just a minute. Stay with us. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles. 
Thank you for tuning in and making KPFK part of your routine. Today is Tuesday, July the 20th, and it marks the first day of KPFK's Summer Fund Drive. This month, KPFK will actually be turning 62, against all odds. And we're relying on you to help this venerable community service continue well into the future. Your financial support is so important to KPFK. It's your generous donations that fund this entire operation. Please help support commercial-free, people-powered radio by making your contribution now at kpfk.org slash donate. If you'd prefer to call us to make your pledge, you can do that at 818-985-5735. That number again is 818-985-KPFK. Thank you for doing your part in supporting KPFK. And welcome back to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. Our guest today, Mark Gober, is the author of a couple of books on consciousness an unlikely author, a fellow who worked in business in Silicon Valley, an investment banker for many years, who uh, did a dangerous thing. He started reading books outside his field. <laughs> he discovered that uh, there are aspects to the nature of awareness, that which we call consciousness, but sometimes that's a sort of an unwieldy word. What, what does that even mean, consciousness? Um, and we're hearing the word mindfulness more and more, which I think is a good thing. Again, self-awareness, we're hearing that more and more. I like the phrase, noticing what you notice. Think about that for a moment. How often do you notice what you notice? There's great uh, benefit to when you walk, doing nothing but walk and observe the world around you. Don't we usually, when we walk from point A to point B, think about other things while we're walking? When we eat food, do we pay attention to the food we eat and how it tastes and the texture of the food and where it came from and how it nourishes the body? Probably not. It's usually a social occasion where we chat with friends and eat like we're robots, paying no attention to the food or the consequences on our health. And if you're alone, you probably end up reading the back of the package (laughs) rather than just sit with your awareness. To not just think, but to watch those thoughts, not just have feelings, but to observe the patterns of those feelings. To not just behave reflexively, but to look at your options and the variation of choice that you have before you initiate a behavior rather than just reacting as if you're a victim of a life coming at you. These are some of the things I think about when I try to get my hands around a word like consciousness or awareness or mindfulness or noticing what you notice. Mark, you were telling us that, uh, it was just a matter of beginning to read books that you got hooked on all of this. Do you remember the day you decided you were going to write your first book uh, and end to upside down thinking and and share with us what you went through when you decided, by golly, I, I'm going to write a book of my own and put this down? Yeah, that was a big decision for me. 
that happened, I think it was in June of 2017. So almost a year in of doing this research, the entire time I was researching just because I wanted to understand reality better. I wasn't thinking about writing books. And I remember before going to work one day, before driving from San Francisco where I live to Silicon Valley, maybe I should put this on paper and I should organize my thoughts. And then I thought, I'm in business. I'm, I'm building my career. Do I want to be writing a book about consciousness and life after death and psychic abilities? I'm going to sound crazy in the business world. I couldn't do that. But actually, the, the reservations were pretty short-lived. I decided I was going to do it, and I took the 4th of July weekend that year, which was a long weekend, and decided I was going to harness my inner investment banker and work nonstop for the entire long weekend and barely sleep. So I ended up writing more than half of the first draft that long weekend. And then over the next few weekends in between work, I was able to finish it relatively quickly. So it happened fast. And then all of a sudden I had this manuscript and, and here we are. But it came from a desire to share all the information that I had learned because I had spent so much time over that year learning from many different sources. And, and I wanted to be able to bring them together for people so that they could have a single source to start as a, a platform for further learning. Because if I had had that, it would have made my learning journey much easier. And then you decided a couple of years later to do a follow-up book. Was it that you had a bunch of new revelations that needed to be put in the book and end upside down living? Or did you just grow and realize, gosh, there's a whole lot more here that I didn't touch on? How did the second book come out of the first? Well, my first book, the first draft was written in the summer of 2017. It was published in the fall of 2018. And then it, my second book was published in 2020. In between, there was a podcast series called Where Is My Mind, which is available on Apple Podcasts, all the major players, where I interview many of the scientists that I wrote about in my first book. So that took up a lot of my time and, and mental energy in 2019. I, at the end of 2019, I decided to leave my firm. After having spent 10 years there, became a partner, decided I wanted, wanted to spend all my energy in this other area to better understand reality and to work on myself. I just didn't feel as aligned with the business world in the way that I used to. So I took a leap and said I was going to leave without having an exact plan for what was next. And I decided to go on three retreats. These all happened to have occurred right before the pandemic, very coincidentally. One was an Ayurvedic retreat, which was very helpful. And then I had a week off and then I went on a six-day silent meditation retreat. And then I had a week off. And during that week, the second book came in and then I had another meditation retreat right after that. But the, the, the impetus for the second book was to get more to the, the practical aspects of living with this new understanding of the nature of reality. The first book was primarily scientific and showing if we look at quantum physics, if we look at all these things like near-death experiences, telepathy, remote viewing, it points to the idea of a unified field of consciousness of which we are a part. And the second book is, well, what is that? what are the implications for actually living and setting an orientation for our lives and spiritual practice, the spiritual awakening journey? What are the dangers and pitfalls on that journey? Those are the sorts of things I didn't cover in the first book that I thought were really important for people that really wanted to go further. I wanted to have wanted to make that accessible. In my work with private clients, I sort of meet the individual or the couple was well, bad grammar, but I meet them where they're at. You know, it's about connecting and creating rapport and then introducing these concepts slowly, uh, usually through awareness of our emotions. Our mental nature we're aware of, that's what school is about. Our physical nature, well, we've had phys ed, so to speak, throughout our lives. 
But there is no emotional education and little emotional awareness. If there's an area of life where we feel like victims, that's it, you know. He made me angry. She made me whatever. I'm wondering if we're going to save the world, and we are, how do we take this to business? How do we, we can't just go into a boardroom and start talking about consciousness. Let's be a little subversive here and consider how can we begin to work this into the awareness of those who produce goods and services and allow them to lead more fulfilling lives for themselves and their families, their community, and the world, and transcend this divisiveness and hostility and and, and even competition at its core. What's your sense of the best way to approach business people with this understanding? Well, for me, putting into context why one does business in the first place is important. What is the goal of business? It's to serve consumers in some way. And if, if that's the priority to be of service, even though it can be profitable, which enables the business to continue, that's important too. That can't be ignored. But the intent behind the business, that's a question that sometimes isn't asked. Sometimes the first question is, what can I do that's profitable rather than what can I do that's of service? And then there needs to be both because a business has to be profitable to work, but it also, it, we would want it to be something that contributes the, to the well-being of the world in some way. So I think that's one shift that that could help. But in terms of enabling that shift in others, it's it's challenging because, number one, I'm not sure if it's our individual responsibilities to change others. It's their journey. But we can act in a way such that others see the way that we approach life. And that can have an influence. And many spiritual teachers talk about basically when one elevates one's consciousness, that radiates out to others. So just being in the presence of someone with an elevated perspective can be helpful. That's one way of thinking about it. And then another, I think, is um, personal experiences, which we can't put on someone, but there's a common theme in the research that I've done, whether it's a near-death experience or psychedelic experiences or meditation experiences, something that's spiritually transformative. When someone has a direct experience, it becomes undeniable, and there's an immediate shift. Whereas, like what I've done in my work so far, I've, I've tried to put the intellectual evidence together for people only certain people resonate with that. Not everyone wants the intellectual aspect. They want to have the experience. I'm confused about what's happening in advertising and marketing and branding. It used to be a given that you would try to communicate the benefits of your product or service in your advertising. It seems that that's been taken over by a concern about branding that to my way of thinking, seems completely illogical. Why would a gecko or an emu encourage me to change my auto insurance? You know, because I'm represented by this lizard or or an emu or the general. I, there's no talk about benefit. I mean, some still, but like we we'll give you a better price or whatever. But I'm I'm wondering what is happening to human consciousness that the nature of advertising, you can benefit from this product and service and that'll benefit me. And then I'll make a better product or service and that'll benefit you. Do you have a sense of what I'm talking about and where is that gone? And 
What does this new em- uh, emphasis on branding have to do with anything? Well, to me, I think it relates to human psychology that we are so influenced by certain stimuli that we take in, and that can have a big impact on our decision-making and behavior as consumers. And people have become uh, so, there's such a short attention span because there's so much content we have everywhere. I think that naturally changes the nature of advertising and branding from the perspective of a profit seeker to try to maximize impact. And that will use psychological techniques that, that are geared toward um, a fixation on the product in some way. Well, short attention span, that really triggers something in me. As attention span gets shorter and shorter, for one thing, people are reading less and less. Reading of books is down by more than a quarter in the last decade. Look what's happened to newspaper and magazine circulation. And God, even TV news is secondary to people who get their news on Facebook. That's not news. Social media is not a a source of news. I say that not only as a journalist, uh, but as a consumer of news. You can't rely on some tweets on Twitter to inform you about what's going on in the world, and yet there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of awareness about that. So to reverse this trend toward an ever shorter attention span, this to me points to the need for meditation as a practice. And I often think of this quote by, uh, I think it was Blaise Pascal that said, the source of all man's problems is his or her inability to sit quietly alone in a room And that is so terrifying to people. And yet they're even unaware of the fact that they're terrified to be alone with their thoughts and feelings. Prayer and meditation, introspection, contemplation, seems to be the direction we need to move in. Yeah. Well, I can relate to the challenges associated with meditation. Even in my journey, for several years, I had a hard time sitting down for five or ten minutes. As much as I was researching, I still couldn't sit still. It really was those meditation retreats at the beginning of 2020 where I was forced for multiple days consecutively to have no contact with the world, no speaking, just meditating and being quiet. And I was able to see the value in that. But I think the world conditions us to essentially be like hamsters on a wheel or it's like being on a treadmill where we're constantly running and we're not actually getting anywhere and we're so used to being in that state, it's hard to decompress. I often compare it to pond scum. Like you may have a pond that is clean, clear, uh, fresh water, but floating on top is some scum. And you got to reach through that if you want to get to the clear water underneath it. And so when we sit quietly with ourselves and feel our feelings, once we get past that monkey mind of thought, that roof brain shatter, those intrusive, pedantic, self-loathing and criticism. The first feelings we feel are hurtful. They're painful. And so we have some demons we need to slay. In Islam, the word jihad, we've been conditioned to believe is about killing Christians or Western imperialists. The word jihad in Islam is really about slaying your own internal demons and dragons. I wonder if you have some thoughts about 
what Joseph Campbell called the hero's journey, which is really facing the inner shadow and not only facing but embracing what scares us about ourselves. I think that's critical. And I'm reminded of the philosopher Ken Wilber's idea of lines of development in the awakening process where there's multiple areas in which we develop. He says it's about waking up, cleaning up, and growing up. And a lot of what you were just referring to is this area of cleaning up. We can wake up all we want and and try and understand the nature of reality and think about that. But if we don't look at our own inner shadow and whatever trauma that we have within ourselves, that will hold us back. So there is a process of inner cleansing. And I think there's also a process of collective cleansing as well. In my own life, I've taken to considering that every emotional feeling that hurts me, usually born of confusion and unawareness, that which I do not understand about myself, if I consider it to be like a Halloween costume, confront it and unmask it, say, who are you really? Not in normal awareness, but in a reflective, meditative state, maybe with guided imagery and... uh, Hey, heartache, hey, loneliness, hey, anger and contempt and, and vengefulness. Uh, who are you really? What are you really about? Take off that stupid mask and reveal yourself to me. And it takes a bit of courage, especially at first, but then you sort of roll with the process. You realize that these are just games the brain is playing with you to get your attention. When you When your emotions hurt, the brain is just signaling you like a red light on the dashboard of your car. Hey, this needs attention. David Hawkins used to say that if you're feeling something, that means you're not feeling it enough. In other words, it's being suppressed. And if it were felt fully, then it would run out of its energy. So if one has anger, his recommendation, he used to be a psychiatrist in addition to a spiritual teacher, he would say, let the anger out. Be as angry as you want in a room by yourself until the anger is gone. Otherwise, it will fester. And I think that really does apply to so many emotions. We the emotion comes up, it's uncomfortable, and then we suppress it. We don't want to think about it. But if we let it express itself, then it can clear within our system. Alan Watts says, if you meet a ghost on your path, give them a hug. It's just a part of you that needs love and attention. We could look at it as a, a signifier that there's something we need to look at. Rather than being afraid of it, afraid of it, it's teaching us something. Yeah. And that means the game is rigged. It means all of our problems and all of our heartache, all of our mental and emotional distress, and we could extrapolate that to what we perceive as physical problems in the world. All of this adversity is to grow us. Does that philosophy work for you? It it does, and I'm reminded of Nizargadatta Maharaj, who said that life is the supreme guru. In other words, we could look at everything that's occurring in our life both internally and the, in the external world, as something that we can learn from. Every single event that happens is a teachable moment for us. And if we look at the universe that way, it is, in a sense, rigged for our own evolution. But that changes the perspective on anything that happens, because then we might not be as afraid of something. If it occurs, we could say, well, what is the potential learning here, rather than wanting to just suppress it? Everyone and everything is our teacher, especially that which we would wish to avoid. Exactly. <laughs> but I don't want to go there. That hurts. It's scary. It, uh, well, that's the whole deal with physical dents, you know, and, and life in this, uh, in this physical universe. Uh, do you have any, uh, plans to, uh, 
do another podcast to re- revitalize uh, your podcast, add some uh, see another season to it. As of now, there are no definitive plans, but I'm always researching, so who knows? And tell us the title again. It's called Where Is My Mind? And more to the point, your books, I'm sure they're available everywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, let's be sure that folks have the title and subtitle. The first book, An End to Upside Down Thinking. Tell us the subtitle to that as well. Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. And then your second book is entitled? An End to Upside Down Living, Reorienting Our Consciousness to Live Better and Save the Human Species. And I presume there's benefit in reading them in that order. I've heard uh, mixed things from readers. Some people say they like to read the second one first, then the first one. And other people say start with the first and go to the second. So I don't... I think it's a matter of personal preference. So flip a coin or better yet, trust your intuition. Buy them both, right? Whatever you feel called to do. Mark Gober is my guest today. Mark, uh, it's been great meeting you and chatting with you today on the Mystery School Show. And uh, gosh, I hope we can stay in touch and um, really value the research you're doing. And like I say, I, I hope this filters into business soon. Because corporations are very powerful, very influential, and a lot can be done from the top down. I'm a big promoter of bottom-up thinking, you know, groundswell movements. But to reach out to these business executives and help them to reframe the whole reason they do business and, indeed, the whole reason they live their lives, you know, They may not punch out at 5 o'clock, but they have lives. They have families, and they want to put their feet up and relax and enjoy their lives too. And it's easy in business to get so caught up in it that you don't have a lot of time left for that, and it begs the question, then why am I doing it? It begs the question, what is the overall intention of one's life? That is the fundamental question. And then everything that we do and value stems from that. And I think many people, including myself, several years ago, I didn't have a good answer to that question because I thought life was meaningless. So with a new view of reality, all of a sudden one's intention has to become aligned with the nature of reality. It's only rational. And that's how at least I've approached it. Thank you, sir. We'll talk again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Mark Cover, my guest, and uh, stay with us. We'll have a little more right after this. This is Jackson Brown. I've been listening to KPFK since I was a teenager. Then and now, KPFK has been a lifeline to vital information without which we would be at the mercy of corporate media and commercial interests that control it. There are so many programs that I've listened to regularly and so many instances when I've come upon the unexpected, the unknown, and the sublime. Join me and become a member today at kpfk.org. Now more than ever before, it's essential to keep supporting KPFK and the free exchange of ideas and cultural viewpoints that foster our democracy. And the number, which is the only number I know actually by heart, 818-985-5735. KPFK. I came for inspiration. I came we're back with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK here in Los Angeles, 90.7 FM. 
and streaming for the world every Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock California time, 20 hours universal time at kpfk.org. I'd like to take the few minutes I have left to make a few remarks, first of all, about just how remarkably clear this young man is and what he's accomplished in less than a decade. You can, too. If you begin to read, that's all he did. He just started reading books and listening to podcasts and attending workshops and seminars. And in his free time, while he continued to work a full 40-hour-plus work week, he figured this stuff out. He did in less than 10 years what it took me 35 or 40 years to figure out. And then some. I think he's really clear, very lucid on this whole subject of consciousness. Now, one of the overriding principles of understanding that consciousness is primary to what appears to be our experience of a physically dense world is the realization of connectedness or interconnectedness, that there's really just one of us here, that as long as we limit our view to our solid form nature, our bodies and the objects in the world in which we live, we all seem very separated and not only diverse, but quite unique, really. No two snowflakes are like this universe. It appears goes out of its way to avoid replicating itself. And that's true with each of us. At the same time, the paradox that we discussed is that we're part of a single cosmic universal field, one huge ocean of electromagnetism. We're born of energy and exist eternally and infinitely as the substantial part of the energy equals mass equation, the equivalence of energy and mass. Everything material is impermanent, but energy is eternal and infinite. Well, consciousness is energy. And so when we look at emotional intelligence as being, as I often say, a portal to a spiritual consciousness and discovery of who we really are, we have to look at the field known as relationship management. For our ability to understand ourselves through emotional intelligence leads to empathy. Empathy leads to a much greater understanding of what we have in common with other people, in spite of the fact that we're all gifted with unique talents and abilities. We have so much in common and an important part of leadership in business, in, in any organization for that matter, in a family even being part of a team of leaders, is to be able to empathize with other people and motivate not only yourself, but join that team. It may not have ever occurred to you, but in order for a team of horses, two horses, four horses, maybe six horses, working as a team to pull a big heavy wagon, or this goes for sled dogs as well, they have to recognize when they're in harness that they're part of a team, a team of dogs, a team of horses. And in a sense, they give up their individuality or maybe better said, align their individuality, their free will with the greater good of the team. 
The horses of the dogs have to feel themselves in that harness and lean together to work together to pull the load forward. And when they do that, great work gets done and everyone benefits, including the animals. They, in most cases, really love what they're doing. I don't know if you've ever seen sled dogs run, but in most cases, they have a great time. Well, my point is, each of us is part of a number of teams, and one of the teams, one of the families, if you will, that I'd like to talk to you about for just a couple of minutes here is the KPFK team, the KPFK Pacifica family. I'd like to call to your attention the fact that while you may be listening alone through headsets or in your car, you're really not alone. You're part of thousands and thousands of people that are listening live on the radio at 90.7 FM or one of our repeaters over the internet at kpfk.org, perhaps through a podcast where thousands of people all around the world are able to listen on demand. You're part of a team, a group of progressive men and women who want to not only improve their own lives, but make a difference in the world, to pull together, to work together, to lean into the harness and combine our efforts for the greater good. In order to do that, you have to support what supports you. And this radio station is completely and totally dependent upon your support. It's obvious, you don't hear commercials. There are no corporate sponsors at KPFK. We have the editorial freedom to do what we do because listeners like you contribute small amounts on a regular basis to support this radio station, to help us pay our bills, which are substantial. And I will continue with these pleas, with these appeals, until everyone that listens to my radio program, The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, and ideally every other radio program on this dial, 24-7, is contributing something. Maybe it's $5 or $10 a month. You're not going to miss that. And yet, on this end, it'll make an enormous difference. Fewer than 10% of the people that listen to this radio station, that rely on Pacifica for news, information, and entertainment, ever make a contribution. So, if you have, and if you are, you're exceptional. But everybody should. If you're going to be part of the team, then lean into the harness with us. Go to kpfk.org slash donate. Look for the sustainer circle. You'll find it easily. And set it and forget it. $10 a month, $25 a month or more, depending on what your conscience dictates what you can afford, given other charitable causes in your life. And then each month, that amount is deducted from your bank account. You won't even miss it. It's like bank fees, right? It's hardly any more than bank fees. It's less than the taxes you probably pay on your cable bill, those secret fees that you never know what they're for or where they really go or why you have to pay them. Well, in this case, you do know why. Imagine 10 bucks a month, that's $120 a year. You won't miss $10 a month, but $120 a year is a significant contribution to this radio station. Of course, $20 a month, you've doubled now to $240 a year, what you can donate to 
this Pacific Commission. And of course, it's tax deductible. We're a nonprofit charity, a 501c3. So once you do that now, do that on this program. Set it, forget it. You're done. You don't have to think about every year digging deep and coming up with a $100 or $200. Just go to the sustainer circle and set up 10 or $25 a month. The website address, as you might expect, is kpfk.org slash donate, kpfk.org forward slash donate, and then look for a sustainer circle and join the team. Lean into the harness. Be a part, an integral part of the effort to inform the community, to provide answers, insight, solutions to the problems we face, and to clear your conscience knowing you're doing the right thing and you really are making a significant difference in the world. Anytime you feel frustrated, thinking, gosh, I wish I could do something, you'll be able to remind yourself, I am doing something, something really important, meaningful, valuable. I'm contributing 10 or $20 a month to KPFK and the Pacific Commission. Thanks so much. I appreciate you being here every Tuesday at 1 o'clock for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Remember, you can find each week's program streaming on theagelesswisdom.com. You can also download from there. I'm your host, Michael Benner. Learn more about me at michaelbenner.com. Appreciate you being here. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK.